0: welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. On this week's show, we'll be talking about owls that are not what they seem, aka the revival of Twin Peaks. Our friend TV editor Gazella Mommy is away this week, but I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt zoller Sites. Hey, Matt. Hi, Jen. Hi. So we're going to be talking Twin Peaks, and there's certainly plenty to discuss there. But first, we wanted to do this week's prompt, which comes to us from a listener, Bailey Bennett who emailed us to comment and ask about ambiguous endings. Given how much Twin Peaks traffics in ambiguity, it seemed like a perfect time to address this. She writes, I've been thinking about this after watching the final moments of this season's finale of Master of None. Aziz Ansari says he wanted to leave the ending, quote, purposely ambiguous, and that he wanted to leave it up to interpretation for the viewer. But can this be viewed in some way as laziness on behalf of the writer? It's something that's come up many times before, even in a situation like the Sopranos finale. Even if a writer-creator wants to leave his or her ending up for interpretation, shouldn't they themselves know what the ending is intended to mean? Well, I would start by saying, I think in both those cases, I think the showrunners and writers do know what they intended. They just don't necessarily want to tell the viewer right away because they want people to be able to interpret it as they wish. I mean, Aziz Ansari was at Vulture Festival recently and I interviewed him and I asked him about the finale and he you know, some people were thinking that that last moment between Dev and Francesca is is actually just uh, like a memory of, of something that happens earlier in the season. And he noted, well, no, that's actually not right because they're not wearing the same clothes that they were in the earlier scene. So he was willing to say, I'm going to tell you it's not this, but he's mm-hmm. not necessarily willing to say, here's exactly what this means going forward. And, and I don't think that's necessarily laziness. It's just because he knows what he me- meant. He just doesn't want to color what other people might think about it. That can still, I guess, be frustrating for people who really prefer to have a more straightforward amount of clarity.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there are people who, let's let's just be honest here, there are a lot of people for whom nothing except a clear, definitive ending will suffice. You know, there's like a contingent that believes that anything that is not a clear, definitive, wrap it all up ending, the writer or filmmaker, or whoever is just faking it that they're just being pretentious, that they're just being arty. Mm-hmm. And certainly not all ambiguous endings are created equal, but I think that most people who do an ending like that do know what they are trying to convey. And that's not necessarily the same thing as saying that they have an answer to the puzzle or that they themselves could solve for X. Like it's a math equation. That's, that's, that's a sort of formulation that I use a lot to slap down this idea that Somebody could look at the ending of Citizen Kane or 2001 or The Sopranos or or Blow Up or something and say I figured it out. You know? Like right. even if you like even if on a strict plot level you you think you've got a handle on what happened in terms of the facts, you don't necessarily know what it means. I kind of obsess over this because I feel like it's key to understanding why our culture is and our country are in such dire straits at the moment. I feel like all roads lead through here and we can see it through, you know, the kind of art that we prefer, the kind of mm-hmm. entertainment that we prefer, which is we want the comfort of, of a definitive answer, even if it's bullshit. You know, Mm -hmm. like even if it's bullshit, we want a definitive answer because we want to be able to wash our hands of something and not think about it anymore. We just want to be told what the answer is. It's like, just tell me what the answer is. And you see it probably most desperately and kind of pathetically among people who want to get in fights about the ending of The Sopranos. And their answer is always, well, Tony got shot. Right. Tony got shot. Tony got shot. Why Tony? why tony and not somebody else why at that particular moment when the they had basically wiped out pretty much all of the people who conceivably would have the means and wherewithal to kill tony i mean i could i could go on about this all day god knows but you know <laughs> like it, like i think it's all an alternative to facing the horrible fact that you don't know what it means it's up to you mm-hmm. to create the meaning, and you're never going to get validation from David Chase. You're never going to get validation from anybody except your like-minded friends. And I think that's a little too uh, like. I, I, this is like sounds really crazy, but I think this is like comparable to not knowing what happens after you die, not knowing if mm-hmm. there's a god, like not knowing the answer to all of these really big questions. I think people hate it that they that they that they can't tune into a television show or or watch a movie or read a book and, and, and have to th- have to like live with it and think about it for the rest of their lives and never really know the answer. Like not knowing the answer makes people angry.
0: Right. Well, I do think though, there's a difference between, you know, we don't know if there's going to be another season of master of none at this point, they haven't decided, but I think there's a, also a difference between an ambiguous ending at the end of a season versus an ambiguous ending at the end of a series like The Sopranos or Mad Men or something like that, where there's been so much buildup and there's more of a desire, I think, to have a clear sense of what the writer's intentions were. Not to say that there's not room for ambiguity there, because I, I never really had a problem with The Sopranos ending, for example. But I but I think there's a different level of expectation when you're like, I've been watching the show for six years and and then, did my TV break? <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: yeah, there's that. But yeah, there's that. But there's also, I would have to disagree with you a little bit about that formulation because I think that the shows that have done ambiguous endings are ones that have had moments of ambiguity or deliberate lack of resolution before. I just think it's really, really, really important to come to terms with your own comfort level about ambiguous endings because it says a lot about you know, what you fear, I think, you know, mm-hmm. like what you're comfortable with. The, the point, though, about does it matter if the people who make the show know what they mean, that's a that's a great second half of that question, because um, I think that is a valid question. And I, in my own I can only answer for myself, but I, I think that the artist needs to know what they meant, but they don't necessarily have to lay it out. Like, I, you know, like, I don't think they have to sort of spoon feed it to us. I think and I think David Chase is well within his rights to say something that's a little vague. Like, I wanted the ending to communicate that uh, life was precious and could be ripped from us at any moment without warning. But, of course, that's a kind of answer that leads uh, uh, people to go, well, I guess that means Tony got shot in the diner, you know, <laughs> which is not what he's getting at. <laughs> right. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, shows like Mad Men and The Sopranos and God knows I don't want to tread into this territory, but I will. Uh, Lost even. Um, they all had moments throughout their run where there was where it was ambiguous. So if there was something ambiguous in the finale, it shouldn't have been so much of a surprise. But I, all I'm going to say is I, I do understand the impulse that people have to want, whether I agree with it or not, is one thing. But I understand the impulse that people have to, to want closure
1: the master of none um ending though i i think that it's probably as much about the kinds of movies that aziz ansari loves as it is any sort of narrative function of the serving i mean he he opens the uh he opens the season with a with a black and white episode that is very very not only is it explicitly modeled on some of the classic films of italian Art cinema from the sixties, he actually has a stack of DVDs next to his bed so you can see exactly what the influences are. Which right. is funny. I think that's kind of charming. It's like I- I'll save you the trouble of guessing, of like visiting the <laughs> Criterion website and I'll tell you exactly what I'm stealing from. I thought that was uh, like self deprecatingly funny. But I think that ending is like, you know, his own like Aziz Ansari's attempt to do like an Antonioni ending. You know? Right. Like his own right. way. It's like Aziz's way
0: right well we could we could probably talk about this for an entire podcast but since we do want to get to to twin peaks that is going to wrap up this week's prompt listeners if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week please email us at tvquestions at next up we're talking twin peaks possibly in a weird backwards language during a dream sequence <laughs> we'll be right back After months, years really, of hype and anticipation, Twin Peaks has returned to television after a 26-year absence. The 18-episode season has begun on Showtime, where it's being driven by its original creators, Mark Frost and David Lynch, with all 18 episodes directed by Lynch. A continuing look at what happened to Agent Dale Cooper, the residents of Twin Peaks, and an emerging ensemble of new characters, it is as bizarre, disturbing, patience-testing, and deliberately absurd as we might have expected, maybe even more so. We're going to talk about our responses to the new series, but before we do, I wanted to talk about the original just for uh, a couple minutes and what it meant both to television in general and to each of us personally. I know the significance of this show has been talked about ad nauseum, but I I almost feel like we can't state enough how important it it is and, and has been to the television that we watch now. Matt, can you try to put this into context? Why was Twin Peaks so important?
1: Well god I mean you know we'd be here all week if I tried to right. be thorough about that but <laughs> but uh a few things off the top of my head one is that Twin Peaks more so than any show before it 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 played with established forms with established genres on TV and it and it subverted them and it took them apart and it kind of made something else out of them and yet it was also true to those things I mean it was it was a a nighttime soap opera or a daytime soap opera at night. It was a uh, it was a crime thriller, like a, a police procedural. It was a supernatural horror show, and uh, it was uh you know about five or six other things on top of that, and yet it was its own thing. I remember I, everybody has a version of the story, but I was in college when it first aired. I liked David Lynch. I was into David Lynch. I was a film major. So I think it was like required. I don't think they would give you your Mm -hmm. degree if you weren't a David Lynch fan. And uh, (laughs) I mean, and this was after he had made Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Dune and Blue Velvet. I think those were the films he'd made up to that point. And uh, those were four really interesting movies for one reason or another, not necessarily perfect, but it definitely established him as somebody who had his own vibe that nobody else has. But still, even if you knew kind of what to expect going in, you didn't because he was doing it on TV. And I, at the time, I couldn't get over the fact that ABC even allowed it on the air. And the fact that it was a huge hit immediately shocked me. But the fact that gradually people seem to lose interest in it, except for the diehard Lynch fans, uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because it it later uh, became clear that David Lynch and Mark Frost didn't expect the show to continue. I, I bet they were probably cackling like bandits when they got the when they got the season one order. Like I can't even believe they're giving us money to make this. Uh, <laughs> and and they didn't think far enough. You know, they weren't used to making a TV show. It's not like today where we see all these big name directors going to TV but they always make sure to pair them with an established showrunner who understands how a TV show is made. You know, Frost certainly knew more than Lynch did, but like nobody had experience with somebody like David Lynch in American television yet. Like, that's another way in which I think Twin Peaks was important was it taught, you know, two successive generations of TV makers how to make a show like Twin Peaks. But, But I think in general, it's just... It's a show that uh, was its own thing and had its own personality, defiantly so, and didn't seem to care what anyone else thought of it. And there had been other shows that had tried to do that, but none quite as audaciously as Twin Peaks. And I don't think there was ever one quite as audacious afterwards, because most, most of the time when we talk about shows that were very, very obviously influenced by Twin Peaks, the most successful examples tend to be on cable where there aren't as many rules. That's another remarkable thing about Twin Peaks was the fact that it was on a broadcast network with commercials. And it was so perverse and random and surreal and sometimes unbelievably brutal. That's a part of it that people forget. Like they think of Twin Peaks and they think of people ordering (laughs) pie and talking about coffee and, you know, like the dancing dwarf. And it's like, yeah, that was Twin Peaks. But Twin Peaks was also... Leland Palmer, you know, violently murdering his, his uh, uh, niece, was it? Maddie? Yeah, Maddie yeah. was his niece. Yeah, I mean, you know, like that scene seemed like it went on for days. And uh, mm-hmm. it traumatized my girlfriend so badly at the time that she erupted into tears. Like that's wow. how violent that scene was. And it's still violent. I watched it again recently and it's still violent. So anyway, that's like it. That's yeah. not even the short version of, of like what that show meant. Where Do you remember where you saw it for the first time?
0: Oh, my gosh. More than any other show, I have very distinct memories of where I was and when I was watching specific episodes because weird things would happen well. <laughs> while I was watching it. You know, because that was a mid-season premiere and it started the my last semester uh, in high school. And they ran it and I didn't see the original run, but then they were running it again over the summer before they started the second season in the fall. And my mother was such an enormous fan of twin peaks. Like it makes me so sad that she's not here to, to see it back on the air cause she would lose her mind. But she was uh, like, you have to watch the show. You have to watch the show. It's good. And you know, there were no DVRs. You had to either VHS something or if you, if you didn't like you were just going to miss it. So she's like, they're showing the premiere again, watch it. And while the premiere was airing, there was a thunderstorm and the power went out.
1: Oh my god.
0: Like midway through it. And we had one of those like little tiny like crank TVs that you use when that that run on a battery kind of thing. <laughs> Which, how Mike, like, you How
1: David How David Lynchian.
0: Yes, and so I was watching on this like, you know, very tiny little square um to see what happened in the second hour and I remember the premiere of the the second season you know, I live and still do live in the Washington, D.C. area. And they preempted that premiere because the ABC affiliate had the rights to show the Washington Redskins game. Oh. So the entire time that football game was on across the bottom, it's like Twin Peaks will air at 1230 a.m. because we, have, we were airing this football game. So people were mad. But what that meant is that you had to and it was a two hour premiere. So I was up until 230 in the morning. Oh. And as, as I'm sure you remember, the last scene of that premiere is that horrible, like. Runette Pulaski kind of starting to remember things in the train. Yeah. So I went to bed with that imagery in my head and I did not sleep well. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and it was it was in college really for me, too. But my, the beginning of my college experience that it was a it was a phenomenon. And but it was such a quick, like you said, flame out, like there was enormous interest in the beginning and people were still watching it like the, even toward the end, the, the millions of people watching it would be great numbers by today's standards, but were not that great um, back then. Right. But I feel like what happened was the people who who stuck with it were the kind of people who, as you implied, would go on to want to make television who, you know, we, we talk now about are we getting influencers to watch something like everybody who watched Twin Peaks who stuck with it was an influencer and they didn't know it yet.
1: Well, in fact, David Lynch, I did an interview with David Lynch for for New York Magazine uh, when it was first announced that there was going to be a new Twin Peaks. And the whole interview was just about how important Twin Peaks was. And he he talked about all of the things that he, you know, paid homage to slash ripped off from Twin Peaks, including the shots of the wind moving through the trees and uh, the dream stuff. You know, the dreams were. Pretty pretty clearly using Twin Peaks dream sequences as a model, but also the interest in psychoanalysis and the sort of Freudian Jungian unconscious, and the and the and the ratio of absurd, almost farcical comedy to, uh, to brutal violence. I mean, really, a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting now, you know, because Twin Peaks being back on Showtime, it's competing against American Gods and The Leftovers, two shows that I think certainly take pages from from Twin Peaks. Um. So it's like Without a whole a night of weird programming. <laughs> Thanks to that show. Well, let's start talking about the new the new episodes. You know, you wrote a review after watching, I think, did you watch all four when you wrote your review or just the first two hours?
1: I watched the first two. I watched very closely. But I think like a lot of people, I, I got word fairly late in the day that uh, Showtime had decided to put up three and four. So I was looking at, you know, two hours of watching Twin Peaks and then another two hours of watching Twin Peaks. And then then you're four hours deep into it and you got to write your review before dawn. So three and four, I didn't I didn't watch as closely as I did one and two, you know, which isn't to say I wasn't paying full attention. I'm just saying by that point, I was so tired that I don't think I was getting an accurate read on what was happening. But my overall response to it was, holy crap, this is like the original Twin Peaks times all the other movies David Lynch made after Twin Peaks which were right. as as I as I've written in you know all of my pieces the thing people had to bear in mind as they came into this thing was David Lynch is not the same director that he was in 1990 that's not to say he's better or worse it's just he's even more David Lynch if such a thing is possible and you look at something like Lost Highway Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire which are the three most recent features he's made and the last one was was released eleven years ago. I mean, it's not right, like he just yeah. made released a new one last year. I mean, he's had eleven years to to sort of gestate even more. This feels like he's combining the the incredibly unrelenting, austere, sort of surrealist, abstract quality that you see in some of his later films with the familiarity of Twin Peaks, which is really interesting. It's hitting all those beats. That you want Twin Peaks to hit, it's bringing back the familiar characters, the familiar settings, the music and all of that stuff. But it's, it's kind of twisting them inside and out. And I think the opening credits are the key to understanding the difference between the two Twin Peakses. And that is, you know, you hear the music playing. It's, the, it's basically the same score, Angela Badalamente's score. And you're seeing the familiar imagery of the waterfall and uh, other things that weren't in the original credits, like the red curtains and the and the zigzag pattern on the floor of the red room. Right. But they're but they're shown from weird angles. The curtains are not just still curtains; they're billowing like in a very weird, un- unreal kind of way. the The waterfall is photographed not from head on or even sort of like from a normal perspective, but looking directly over the falls, so that it looks like it's a fire hose that's spraying out water. You know, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's sort of like in a way it's almost like a metaphor for the way David Lynch is approaching the Twin Peaks universe now, 25 plus years later, which is he's he's got a different angle. Like he's literally got a new angle on this, I think.
0: Right. You know yeah, what I mean? One of, yeah, I do. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that is I feel like a lot of what the whole show, at least so far, is doing is playing with ideas of memory which is what a reboot does, you know, when you, you go back to watch a show that's come back and you have certain expectations, oh, it's going to feel like it felt 18 years ago or whatever. And it usually doesn't, but he's really directly and, and at the same time indirectly addressing that idea. And I felt it most strongly in the fourth episode, which I just absolutely loved. That was the least dark of the first four uh, and the one that had the most sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. Did. Hello. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, we have to talk about that. But um, yeah, but there were moments in that like where, you know, Bobby walks into who's now a police officer of all things, walks into the conference room and he sees that picture of Laura and just starts crying. crying. It's, like, it's bringing back memories. Yeah,
1: like Sheriff Andy in the in the pilot.
0: Right, right with all the doppelgangers and just like, it's really asking you like, is what you see really what you think you see? Or are you seeing something else? And the show has always kind of asked you that, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's addressing that now that it's doing it within the context of being both new and familiar. It's just, it's a really fascinating experience, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it is. And that's a good point about, about the way it's about memory. I think that's very true. And, and it's also about, um, it's about loss, it's about time lost and people lost and and I love the way that they really made a point of including as many people from the original cast as they could. And and it makes for rather unwieldy storytelling at times. There are moments in the first four episodes where I felt like characters are being shoehorned in a little bit like uh and and given kind of, kind of almost sitcom-y entrances where you're supposed to applaud them, you know. Um <laughs> Yeah. But that's OK. I mean, it's been it's been 25 plus years and I kind of want that. <laughs> so it's right. all right. But the fact that the actor, uh, Catherine Coulson, who plays the log lady and Miguel Ferrer, who plays Albert, are dead mm-hmm. and they're in the show. Is, well, with uh, Coulson moving. in particular.
0: Yeah, could, I didn't I mean, know she, she obviously... was,
1: I didn't know they got to her before she passed.
0: Yeah, she obviously she died of of cancer in 2015, I think it was. But she had shot um, some scenes for this, and and is clearly ill in real life as well as the character. And there's something like terribly poignant about watching those moments. And there's other people who, you know, Warren Frost has died since then, but he had shot his scenes. But it, but there's also that feeling of like, gosh, a lot of these people are are not with us anymore but this is making their spirits still kind of be here in this weird way
1: yeah and it's really it's really lovely because david lynch for the most part is not thought of as a warm compassionate filmmaker but i think he is in his way and i think i think this show really proves that i mean this is the director who a movie that a lot of people forget and in fact I myself forgot it in listing his movies mere minutes ago is uh, the straight story. Right. His film from 1999 which is Richard Farnsworth plays an elderly man who goes to visit his dying brother uh in the next county and uh he dra- decides to go there by driving a tractor like <laughs> you know like 12 miles an hour. The whole movie this old the movie's about an old man driving a tractor. I don't think you get much more uncommercial than that. But that's a very, uh, very uh, compassionate, thoughtful movie about age, about mortality, and about death, and and uh, and the need to uh, make a heroic gesture, even though it may be futile in the greater scheme of things. But there are elements of that throughout Lynch, and and one aspect that I think uh, that has been misunderstood about Lynch is. Um, and I probably said this myself at one point or another, but evil tends to make a much stronger impression than good in a lot of his work. Like, when you think mm-hmm. of Blue Velvet, you don't think of Jeffrey, you think of Frank Booth. hmm You know, because he's just such an overwhelming demonic presence. And you think of Lost Highway, the first thing that I think of is uh, Robert Blake's character. Right. With the white face and the, uh, and the video camera. And he's another kind of devil figure. Basically, Satan always steals the show. And this has been true going back to Paradise Lost, but... His Portrait of Good is often very kind of eccentric, cutesy. It's very uh, cartoonish. It's almost like something out of an mm. art, like Archie Comics. Like <laughs> like when Lo- Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan are having their conversations in Blue Velvet, it's like they are a couple of teenage ingenues from a 1950s film, but they're trapped in a 70s like drive-in movie.
0: It's like, it's like it's almost earnest, cranked up as far as it can go to the point that it's a little absurd
1: it is and is and yet i don't think that david lynch is making fun of them no you know
0: right i mean and that's true in twin peaks too i mean Agent cooper's character uh, especially in the early episodes when he he's like look at the ducks and the trees in this place And, and, (laughs) and and i think that that comes from a real place of sincerity it just sounds really silly but it but it it absolutely does like you you get the sense like david lynch and Agent, who Asian Cooper is basically like his proxy. Um,
1: yeah, he even kind of really looks do, like him.
0: Yeah, really do appreciate um, this in this almost childlike way.
1: Yeah, and and he does, and you know Lynch is uh, very in. He's very much into transcendental meditation. In fact, he's he's as probably as forceful a public advocate of that as he is seeing a movie in a proper theater, which is you know something he's on the soapbox about quite a right. bit. It really is important to him. And uh, he's he's written a, he written a whole book about it, and um, mm-hmm. and and I do think that he is a person who is uh, seriously interested in finding some kind of inner peace for himself and encouraging other people to do the same, and and yet he is also a human being and uh, and a, and an artist with a, a definite inclination to to examine the perverse and the and the frightening, but I think it's in the service of something, I really do, mm-hmm. and I think like. I've never felt that David Lynch lacks a moral compass. I think, he, I think he makes errors in expressing that sometimes. And that's not to take anything away from Lynch. I mean, he's, he's the big brain in the sky compared to me. I just mean, I, I, I think sometimes he falls prey to uh, wanting a little bit to shock us and rattle us too much and maybe maybe not in balance with the other elements.
0: Right. No, I would agree with that. And it's interesting you bring that up in terms of um the shock value factor because I've seen some people talking about this online uh, about in the new Twin Peaks, you know, there's a lot of violence against women. There's a lot of nudity, which is to be expected. He couldn't do that on ABC uh, when he was making the original. And that the original certainly had a lot of violence against women in it as well. But I think because it's now on Showtime and he has, you know more leeway to be more graphic. It's going to be a little bit more overt, as it is in his films,
1: including including Fire Walk with Me.
0: Right, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Like I have mixed feelings about it because I, you know, I complain when Game of Thrones I feel is is doing that in a way that that is exploitative. But I, for so, I don't know if I'm just giving Lynch more of a pass than I should or not. But for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like it's an intentionally. I'm trying to exploit this and and push this stuff in your face without having a reason why I'm doing it. But I can't even explain why I feel that way. It's just the feeling that I have.
1: I wouldn't go quite that far. I I definitely give David Lynch a lot more leeway than I do other directors with that stuff. But I do think there have been some moments in the first four episodes that felt like, uh, all right, he's a dirty old man.
0: Yeah. Like, which moments are you thinking of? The prostitute? With
1: Dougie. Yeah, with Dougie and the prostitute. I I, I mean, just the particular way that was photographed, it felt a bit uh, cliche of HBO in the 80s. And also just, you know, the shot of the female FBI agent walking away at the end of, I guess it's three or four. I think it's episode three.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I
1: I mean, there's not a lot of instances of that. Just one or two here and there. But I think that lynch is um i think he's very advanced in his sensibilities in a lot of ways but there are other ways in which he's kind of a guy yeah you know that's 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 not to take anything away from how great and important and original he is in other ways it's just to say that he's got his blind spots and uh i don't think it's a you know it's not a deal breaker for me other people may disagree but um I think there's also a kind of a conservatism uh, in Lynch, like a kind of social and political conservatism, because he's thought of as a hipster director. But remember that this is a a very white bread dude who grew up in Missoula, Montana, you know, like right. over half a century ago. And he may have become sort of a downtown boho hipster artist, but he's never going to escape that fundamentally conservative worldview and uh, you see touches of that. You see touches of it in films like Wild at Heart, which kind of equates non-traditional monogamous relationships and kind of multi-ethnic relationships with something that's exotic for or forbidden or scary. And mm-hmm. and and you you see it in other other Lynch films as well. And I'm not trying to denigrate the guy. Like, and I'm not trying to like beat him with the you know with the with the woke stick. You know, or anything, because I, <laughs> I really hate that. And it, and it becomes a kind of a, a ridiculous performative exercise when you're in the face of an artist of his magnitude. You got, you know, like, I feel like you got to weigh all the different parts. But here's another thing, though. I think that thing you were saying, like, why doesn't it bother you as much? Because I think that Lynch is being honest with us. I mm-hmm. think he's being very honest with us in the way he explores his subconscious. The subconscious can be an ugly place. You know, and I think he's being very I think he's unscrewing the top of his head and saying, here's what's in my head. I don't think he's shading it or sugarcoating it to make him seem like a nicer, better, more evolved person than he is. I really think he's showing it to us. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at the same time, though, you know, did that prostitute have to be naked throughout all of those sequences? Uh, You know,
1: clearly not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> clearly not yeah i mean you know this is a guy who in the original run of twin peaks he contrived a a scene to let him uh you know he at the time he was you know 25 years younger but he g- he gave himself a scene where he got to make out with the 25 year old <laughs> you know he's like like let's you know the guy's not going to be getting any prizes from now anytime soon
0: right you know i mean he
1: just isn't and and you know that's But there are a lot, a lot, a lot of women filmmakers and critics who who find Lynch fascinating and in some cases flat out adore him and are quite aware of those particular failings. And that's okay. I don't I don't think that shouldn't be okay. Right. You know,
0: you said in your review, you said a lot of positive things, but you also did say this as a word I used earlier may test people's patience. What are the elements that, that have tested your patience so far?
1: Well. I think I'm a little bit more okay with them than I was when I wrote the review, but certainly the entire series so far seems really elongated. Mm -hmm. Everything about it, it's like Twin Peaks in slow motion. And Twin Peaks was not particularly a fast-paced show to begin with, but here, I mean, I feel like every, I think every scene is probably 1.5 to 2 times longer than it probably has to be, strictly from an information delivery standpoint
0: right you know you'll have yeah. somebody
1: say like are you gonna eat you know i'm giving obviously there's no scene like this in the show but it's like you're gonna eat the rest of that donut why do you ask because i'm curious if you're gonna eat the rest of that donut i might be well can i have the rest of it why do you want the rest of it you know i mean it's like it's like <laughs> you know it could have just been can you have that can i have the rest of that donut yes hands him donut you know but that's not the david lynch way and And he'll also do that thing where somebody will say something and someone else will take two or three beats instead of one before replying. And then they'll exchange silent quizzical glances and then they'll do the next line. And, uh, And there are scenes that are like that. I mean, there are whole sequences that are like that. And yet there's that's so unlike almost everything else that's being done on television right now, which is in such a hurry to get to the next thing that I kind of dig it. Right. I think it's forcing my brain to work in a different way. And and that's important. Mhm. It's it's making me get outside my comfort zone. I'm like I'm watching the show with different eyes than I watch most television. And and I don't think that would be possible if he wasn't so obstinate about about drawing everything out. <laughs> and right. and uh, and and when he hits pay- like a lot of times the, the 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 joke of letting something go on too long a lot of times on this show it doesn't really work. I have to be honest. It doesn't really like a lot of times I don't think a scene is as funny as it wants to be. Uh-huh. However, when it's funny, it's funny. Like I thought that whole scene with Wally Brando, Michael Sarah's uh, character in his, yeah. his, his Wild One outfit. I I thought I was gonna choke. I was laughing so hard at that. <laughs> I mean it just went it was partly that his it was partly that his 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 actual imitation of Brando was so bad. Like the vocal imitation on purpose. And, on yet, purpose. and yet and yet He seems to understand the essence of Marlon Brando more deeply than anyone I've ever heard imitate Marlon Brando. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I mean, he really gets him like he gets him on like a molecular level. And the way that they just let that scene go on and on and they don't cut. They don't cut. You're just watching Michael Cera do Brando for like, what is it, two, three minutes straight without a cut? And, and the longer he goes on and the more nonsensical and apropos of nothing his his Brando becomes, the funnier it is.
0: I totally agree. I was cackling during that entire scene. The idea that he's Lucy and Andy's son, first of all, is just ridiculous. And they're just so reverent of him. And he clearly ignores them. Yes. Uh, the fact that it says Wally on his leather jacket and this, like, ridiculous embroidery. I mean, there are just so many wonderfully <laughs> stupid details in that that I just— I just loved it. I want to go as Wally Brando for Halloween.
1: <laughs> and then, and, and then, and the way he f- speaks, like he captures that Brando thing, where it's like he's like a he's like a British man from Nebraska. The way he speaks, <laughs> and like he, he he pronounces words in these ways that no one has ever pronounced them. Like ca- he Caucasian, he pronounces Caucasian <laughs> that no Caucasian has ever seen before. You know, and it's like what? <laughs> Who talks like that? No one.
0: Yeah, I'm dying to know the story behind that whole thing. Um,
1: I wouldn't because... be surprised it was as simple as Michael Sarah did 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 Brando for David Lynch at a party once.
0: Or if or if they were just like, "Hey, you, do you want to be in the new Twin Peaks?" Yes, okay. And then he shows up at four in the morning. Put this on. Here's <laughs> Is <laughs> there were time when it looked like he was about to start laughing?
1: Yeah, it did. Away. Well, it did. It did. Well, in fact, I think Robert Forster. I mean, Robert Forster, the great Stone Face. There were a couple of a couple of takes of him where he looked like he was he was trying he was about to lose it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's that was one from episode four, which I mentioned earlier that I just loved so much, and and the other sequence in that that I just thought was brilliant was i guess it's it's the actual agent cooper who has now inhabited the body of of Dougie, this real estate agent who also looks like agent cooper and but he because of his you know movement between different dimensions has lost all capacity to do you know basic tasks he's trying to figure out how the world works basically you're and, talking
1: about cooper now not yeah, wall, I'm about not Dougie. Yeah. right yeah
0: there's a scene where he comes into the kitchen for breakfast he doesn't know how to put on a tie so it's just like on top of his head and you have this wonderful moment where um, Naomi Watts, who plays his wife, she serves him pancakes, and you get to watch. It's it's effective, like watching Agent Cooper discover breakfast food for the first time.
1: I, it's and it's a great scene.
0: And then the coffee, and when he just when he sees the coffee, it's like he Kyle McLaughlin is magnificent in that. He's, He's great in this great. He's really still, like, great. Five different people, at least at this point.
1: Yes, and there may have uh-huh. they may have more in store for us before this thing is done.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm expecting there to be just, you know, 87 Agent Coopers by the time this is over with. But <laughs> he, has, he has this wonderful expression like coffee, like he he realizes what that is. And it sparks a memory somehow. And, it, and he does. And he repeats that same, you know, moment from the original Twin Peaks where he, he sips coffee. It's hot. He spits it out. But it's a different There's a different context for it now. And then he just goes, hi.
1: (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, whatever else, like, I I tell you, like, I can't imagine anybody sticking with the show up until that point if they didn't like it. But if you didn't like the show, I think if you stuck with it up to that scene, you would you would you would finally be sold because that's uh, just such a beautiful, funny. It's so kind of tangential, only tangentially connected to the rest of the series. It's almost like a. A lot of the sequences on the show feel like self-contained little short films on the theme of Twin Peaks. But that one, something about that one really got me. And it's just, it's sublime. It's just sublime. Like he shuffles in to the kitchen and Naomi Watts is cooking and his son, played by the creepy kid from Looper. That's interesting. is sitting at the table.
0: And, And by the way, his name is Sonny Jim Jones what i just want to point out,
1: sunny jim jones oh my god my question is is it sunny with an o or with a u
0: it's it's an o apparently i looked it up all right but it's like it's like let's take the name jim jones and put something happy in front of it (laughs) well there's you
1: know that's david lynch in a nutshell isn't it (laughs) he's sunny he's sunny jim jones with it with a u (laughs) Um, But, yeah, just like seeing Kyle MacLachlan as Dale Cooper, 25 years after Twin Peaks, discovering pancakes for the first time to the tune of Dave Brubeck's Take Five. (laughs) What else can you possibly want?
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing you could want is an arm tree because that was the other an thing arm was the tree. first episode <laughs> where I was I was and watching. And I'm like, people are going to be like, "What the hell is this?" and turn this off. And I'm like, I kind of love this because it's just so bizarre. It's so out there.
1: It is, and 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 yet there's a remarkable aesthetic consistency with Lynch dating back to the beginnings of his his uh, career as a painter. And if you look at things like uh, the uh, the evolution of the arm and uh, the red room and those kind of decaying steampunk industrial kind of interiors like that you see in the laboratory with the glass box right. and and that you see in the uh the alternate universe which i guess is is the black lodge i've always been unclear if the black lodge is only the entry point to this other dimension or if the uh, dimension itself is the black lodge and maybe it's kind of immaterial but all of that stuff if you look at Lynch's paintings made before he kind of became known as a filmmaker there you see a lot of the imagery you see the color palette you see the textures you see everything and he's still a surrealist painter in a lot of ways and um he's still uh, uh, uh kind of a a trance-like musician and i don't think it's um i don't think it's a coincidence that so many of the music cues on the original Twin Peaks, but also on this one, sound like something that would be playing while you got a hot stone massage at a spa. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're really like like repetitive, gentle, droning kind of music that's meant to sort of contribute to an out-of-body experience. And the theme to Twin Peaks, Angela Badalimente's theme, is is itself a meditative work. Like mm-hmm. I really think it's supposed to induce meditation, and the imagery that accompanies it is meditative imagery. I mean, there's waterfalls, and there's forests, and there's shots of like empty roads with no one on it, and and there are things that are meant to sort of center your mind and take you into some other non-rational place. And then at the end of each episode, he plays you out with a with a with basically a, a, a little music documentary. It's like yeah. all of a sudden, it's like it's Austin City Limits, or or you know. American bandstand it's like let's watch like let's watch a band play but the music is always a sort of a trance like hypnotic piece of pop right and it's gentle have you noticed Mm -hmm. that like it's gentle like he hasn't ended with a sinister work of music yet it's always a very reassuring piece right it's almost like he's like he's the Mr. Rogers of surrealism like he's you're going and you enter the land of make-believe and then you leave it and he always makes sure that you feel good about it right you know
0: What's interesting is I, I I suspect that based on how things have gone so far, that all of us critics are going to be talking about the show a lot this summer. Yeah. But I have a feeling that's going to be disproportionate to, I don't know, how many people are actually watching it. Like the, the Nielsen ratings on the first episode, which are only a very small snapshot because a lot of people will watch these things later down the line. But the same day was like 506,000 people watched. uh, And that was actually less than watch the leftovers and American gods, not by a lot, but by a little. And I wonder, you know, but But you've looked on social media the night that the Twin Peaks was on, and it was being discussed quite a bit. And it's well, just it's reflective to me of the of the divide there. Like the number of people who actually watch something based on the Nielsen's versus what's driving conversation, that gap has existed for quite a while now. And I feel like Twin Peaks is really going to highlight that
1: I think that's true. But I think as our colleague Joe Dalian pointed out in an article recently, The success of shows is measured by different metrics now than it was when Twin Peaks was on the air or even than it was uh, 10 or even five years ago. And, and, you know, it's true that the traditional traditional ratings for a premiere on a cable network were down, like they may be a little less than they thought they were going to be. But on the other hand, Showtime subscriptions are going like gangbusters. Right. And I know a number of people personally who got Showtime subscriptions just to watch Twin Peaks. And in the end, the economics may work out. And and you also get this incredible, like, Showtime is a hero, a hero, a hero to me. They are a hero <laughs> to me. They gave David Lynch the money to make 18 hours of television, the equivalent of nine feature films. It is his way. They gave him Final Cut. There was that moment where he was playing chicken with them because he didn't feel like I I was unclear if they weren't paying him enough or if they weren't giving him a big enough budget. Who knows, you know, tomato, tomato, but they paid up. You know, Mm -hmm. he came back and he directed the entire thing. And like, this has never happened before. I keep I keep telling people this. This has never happened before. This is like this is like, you know, he's like a Pedro Almodovar or a. A Woody Allen or, uh, you know, he's like somebody who's a darling for certain people and completely irrelevant to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they don't get this kind of budget and this kind of freedom usually. You know, you have to be like David Fincher does, but that's a different story. You know, Uh, uh, David Lynch has been um, not really much of a cultural force since Twin Peaks. And it's a miracle that he got to do this. And it's only because the words Twin and Peaks were in the title. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Showtime, what does Showtime get out of it? You know, I think, I think in the end they're going to feel like this is a win. I bet they already do because, you know, they showed the first two episodes at the Cannes Film Festival. And David Lynch walked into the uh, room and they gave him a standing ovation.
0: Yeah, I, he walked I saw in that. The
1: room, and this was the same, this is the same festival that booed Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me back in 1992. You know, he's being treated as, you know, one of the all time greats, which he is. And like, that's good for Showtime did that. You know, David Lynch obviously did it and and Mark Frost, but Showtime made it happen. And, and like, that means a lot. Like HBO didn't do this. FX didn't do this. Netflix didn't do this. Showtime did it.
0: Right. And that was kind of the point that I was eventually trying to make by bringing this up, which is. Is it even relevant how many people watch something on the same day anymore? And to what you were just saying, like. The amount of conversation this is going to generate, not just among us, but among, you know, the hardcore Twin Peaks fans. I don't know if you've been on Reddit since the first couple of episodes. Oh, but God, no. Enjoy. <laughs> Get on there and enjoy. It, it is generating conversation and great interest among the kinds of people that I think, you know, Showtime wants to have as subscribers. And that matters more than how many people watch it on night one, really.
1: Yeah. And I also know a lot of people who've told me that they're intentionally not watching it right now because they want to watch it all at once. Oh, wow. And there are, inc- I know, it's like my brain would detonate if I tried to watch this <laughs> entire show. Like, I don't know, I, I, I was pretty wiped out after just four episodes. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'm glad that they're staggering it because I need time to process this thing. You know, I've watched episodes three and four like three times a piece uh-huh. since they aired. And by the time that this podcast... uh is released i will have written about them but as of this recording which is a friday i have not and it's just because i don't feel like i'm ready Mm. i don't want to go off half cocked i i want to feel like i've really absorbed this thing and given it the attention that it deserves and i there aren't too many tv shows i feel that way about Mm -hmm. you know like i feel like this show demands to be responded to on its own terms and uh not by the usual metrics and it's speaking its own language. You know, that's something that you, you know, you've, t- you've pointed out in your own writing about twin peaks, but also, um, Laura Hudson, who's recapping the show, talked about this as well, but this idea of languages, like, you know, language is important too. language mm-hmm. and communication are very important to Lynch. Like I would say at least as important bet- as the uh, relationship between, uh, dreams and reality, and uh, this idea that you can understand someone without actually speaking their language is something that recurs in all of his work. And you see it particularly in the Red Room where these dream figures talk to Cooper and they're speaking this backwards language. Right. And uh, Cooper responds in regular dialogue and they're speaking this, you know, Language where they've recorded the lines forward and then they played it backwards. And when they walked forward, they were actually walking backwards on the set and so forth. And it's a it's really great, eerie, low-tech way to suggest the uncanny. But what I found fascinating was, and this happened with the original show, too. The more time I spent in that red room with Cooper, the less often I had to read the subtitles. Mm. I got oh, to that's the po- interesting. I, I got to the point, it was just like when, like, I... Uh I can read French pretty well. I can't speak it very well at all. Like I would be embarrassed if I ever had to speak French with an actual French speaking person. <laughs> but I can read it and I can read when I'm watching a French film. I can follow along by reading the subtitles at first, but after a certain point I'm not reading the subtitles anymore and I'm maybe not getting every nuance, but I'm I'm getting the gist. I'm getting like mm-hmm. enough to understand what people are saying and um Lynch does that to us, and I think that I think Lynch is speaking a different language from the rest of us, but we understand him. And 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 the more we concentrate on um, the emotion of what he's saying, and and the rhythm of it, and the sound of it, the more we understand. And the words are not that important,
0: right? There is something primal about Twin Peaks. Yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think I think Lynch is. Uh, He's inter- he's a dream interpreter, mm-hmm. and I think like every uh, like a an interpreter of spoken language. I don't think he's getting everything, and I don't think he's communicating all of the nuances to us because it's impossible, right? You know, because we're speaking a different language. Um, but but I, I I think he gets really close. I think he gets really close, and I also uh, think that um, I think that his films do make sense on a dream level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think that uh, I don't think that characters like uh, like uh, Frank Booth or or any or Bob or any of the other demonic characters are just monsters. I think they're also manifestations of fear and guilt and uh, a kind of the reptilian brain and and I think they're they're like characters in a dream where you know they're they're characters and they're also symbols of our anxieties and it's not one way or the other way. Right. And I don't think, you know, and that's why I say like you can't solve twin peaks. I'm not saying that you can't understand how twin peaks functions. I'm saying, you know, you can you can sort of you can sort of make sense of it on the level of what's happening, like on a plot level, but the exact nature of what it all means is ultimately going to be up to us.
0: Which brings us back to what we we're talking about before. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell with engineering help from Efim Shapiro. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I'm Jen Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at ChaneyJ.
1: I'm Matt zala Seitz and you can find me uh, uh, with Ma- uh, Marlon Brando and Wally.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>